welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are joined by one of our AEI colleagues, Rick Hess. He is a senior fellow and director of the Education Policy Studies Department at AEI. And we are very excited to have him join us today to talk a little bit about educational equity. Yes, yes. So, Rick, the reason that Naomi and I named this podcast, Are You Kidding Me?, is because we talk about policies that are said in the name of good outcomes for kids, but actually do quite the opposite. And something happened recently in Oregon that you've written about. The Oregon governor, you know, Senate Bill 744, basically signed a law that allows Oregon students to graduate without proving that they can write or do math. And I think it's really important just to hear the language, the rationale. So a spokesperson said the governor signed this law because it would benefit, quote, Oregon's Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Indigenous, Asian, Pacific Islander, tribal, and students of color, end quote, because the state needed, quote, equitable graduation standards, along with expanded learning opportunities and supports, end quote. That's a lot of gobbledygook, it sounds like, for eliminating the need to read and do math to graduate from high school. I mean, it's not like we're talking about subtle or intricate or, you know, potentially extraneous graduation requirements. Right. Of Oregon actually had her press office get out front and say the ability to write and do math are inequitable expectations for graduation. I'm not sure who should be more troubled by this. I guess white people, in theory, or all of this laundry list of ethnic groups who presumably the governor, whose children the governor doesn't think are capable of meeting basic expectations of writing and doing math. I suspect it's the latter. You know, what struck me upon reading this story was that this is a whole state of Oregon. I mean, you know, a lot of, oh, sorry, a lot of these <laughs> laws and initiatives have been like, you know, some small town somewhere, you know, filled with communists or whatever, <laughs> decided that this would be a good idea. This is a, an entire state that has decided that its people of color are incapable of reading and writing and doing math. I mean, but seriously, I mean, what does this say about where we are that this is an, an entire state has come to this conclusion? And that, I mean, this, these are democratically elected people who think that this is what the people of their state want. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, Oregon, to be fair, is the same state that also said asking students to show their work is a racist, a racist way to teach math. So clearly something in Oregon has gone off kilter, but it's astonishing. And, you know, I wrote in the piece that Ian referenced, you know, that more than anything, 20 years ago, we had a bipartisan kind of consensus that, look, we weren't doing low-income kids or black or brown kids any favors when we looked past the fact that they couldn't read or write. This was an anchor of George W. Bush's 2000 campaign, you know, that we were going to put an end to the soft bigotry of low expectations. Now, that consensus birthed No Child Left Behind, which I have written in a number of books, was, I think, a really problematic law. But the moral postulate was right, that, like, we've got to expect. And 
21st century America that our schools have an obligation to make sure that all of our children, whatever their background, whatever their race or ethnicity, have the basic skills for success in citizenship. And for an entire state to just wantonly say, yeah, we don't believe in that anymore, is just this bizarre resurrection of the soft bigotry of low expectations. I mean, what do you think the governor would say if she were here right now? Like, what, what If she said, no, 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 Rick, I have deep empathy for my Pacific Islander and Latinx students, and, and this is what we need. What's the logic? Seriously, seriously. Yeah. What do you yeah, think? No, I think the logic would be, look, we're concerned that these tests, even though they're low level, and even though Oregon actually did not utilize a test-dependent system, but had about four or five alternatives, she would fixate on the tests and say, we're concerned about whether these tests accurately measure literacy and numeracy. There's been a lot of disruption due to the pandemic over the last year, and we're worried that kids aren't going to get diplomas because of these disruptions in their education. And what we want to do is just take a couple of years and have our experts at the Department of Education fine-tune ethnically and racially sensitive graduation requirements that will no longer perpetuate systemic inequities. And during that few years, that these kids will just be allowed to graduate without having to prove any of this stuff. You got to break a few eggs, I presume she'd say. Do you sense that parents really understand what's going on here, and particularly parents of kids who are, who whose students are going to be passed through without having to go through any kind of rigorous education? Do you think they understand what's at stake here, and that these laws that are essentially being passed to supposedly benefit their kids are, are going to hurt them in the end? No, no. I mean, I think, you know, one of the problems is that this kind of legislation, these kinds of decisions, frankly, most people aren't busy tracking what legislatures are doing when it comes to the ins and outs of graduation requirements. People have real lives and are busy with other things. This doesn't create headaches for people. It makes a headache go away. Some families who might have otherwise found that their kid wasn't going to graduate and would have had to deal with the headaches of remediation and making sure they learned what they needed to learn. It's just, well, okay, they're mailing their diploma. Great. And so part of the problem with mediocrity in education, I think, is that all of the costs are pretty painless in the short term. Kids graduate, they get their piece of paper, families don't have to worry about it. It, it actually makes life easier for this moment. All of the pain for, the, for those students who've been shorted, for those families whose kids are, are not set up, the problem is they don't really find out that that kid got a worthless diploma until that kid is flunking out of college or until that kid is struggling on a job. But by then, you know, you're a couple of years down the road. Someone else's problem. I mean, in the same family, Rick, you've also written sort of part and parcel about racial affinity groups culturally relevant curricula, anti-racist curricula, all in the same kind of category of, you know, we got to focus on the identity of our kids, and that's the real issue. But you've written that there's a, there's a big difference between the myth of things like racial affinity groups and the actual reality of when they play out. Yeah. So I think a couple of things are going on. One, I think we're in this weird kind of perfect storm of this stuff. Kids have been remote in many places for a good chunk of the last 15 months. Now they're back in school, but families had this weird, massive disruption of the regular routine and how they interacted with schools. Also, you've had the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, 
and all that that has brought up in a time of great polarization and sensitivity. And suddenly, a lot of stuff that happens in school is personal and transparent in a way it wasn't for families who would put their kid on the bus and hear about, you know, a little bit of what happened over dinner that day. They've been interacting with and seeing the news. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on educational leaders to react, to do something, to show that they're not tone deaf. And frankly, I I mean, I get that. We do need to do better talking about race in schools. I, I don't know many people who say, oh, we've got it totally covered. And we do have real issues of concern in terms of, you know, wealth distribution or educational distribution in this country that serious people on all sides of these issues want to wrestle with. The problem, I think, is that in their desire to do something, superintendents and folks in school districts and schools have reached out for the most readily available stick. And that tends to be consultants and DEI professionals and academics who tend to be, frankly, either hucksters or ideologues. And it's not that it's hard to imagine doing culturally responsive education in a way that makes all children feel more welcome. We can absolutely imagine that there's ways to diversify curricula, to bring rich new volumes into the canon, to make sure we're thinking about talking about Tulsa or talking about Jim Crow in ways we historically have not. That's all fair. The problem is the consultants and the DEI professionals and the academics who are coming in aren't really selling that. They've been chomping at the bit to do something in schools, in some cases, for a decade, for two decades. And they've got their agenda and their talking points and their ideology. And that's what's getting unleashed on America's kids. So I think whether we're talking about culturally responsive education or the use of affinity groups or standard lowering or these professional teacher training seminars where teachers are worrying about punctuality or linear thinking or delayed gratification or somehow white traits rather than civilizational traits, I think that's what's happening. But all this this is going to have different effects on on different groups of kids. I mean, you're going to have plenty of middle class kids you know, who listen to this stuff and, and it just washes over them and they don't care because they go home and their parents tell them, you know, punctuality matters and exactly. you need to show your work. And I don't care what you think is a white characteristic or not. This is the way we behave. But all of this nonsense, this whole blob of things that you're talking about, that is what is going to be fed to the poor kids instead of the reading, writing and math. And that's all they're going to get. The disparate impact of this, if you'll allow me to borrow everybody's favorite phrase, is just what's so shocking because that is going, this is going to wholesale replace entirely all of the legitimate academic subjects. So it's partly that. I mean, what's weird is, of course, in schools, you've got mixed feeling among teachers, but the teachers who are troubled by this tend to keep their heads down. They've learned that it's personally and professionally dangerous to push back. And Naomi, I think the way you're saying this, one way to think about this is actually in terms of vaccination. Kids who have been, had reinforced in them, yeah, you do your homework, you show up at school on time, you shake hands, you are gracious to the elderly. When schools are telling them other stuff, they have a high degree of defense. It won't always hold up, but there's a degree to which they are, they're inoculated. For children who don't have those same things in their home environments, They come from more chaotic home environments. 
They have adults in their lives who are struggling and not able to provide that same sense of order. These kids are much more vulnerable and they need this stuff from schools much more. So it's not even, it's a problem if it displaces real learning. California, for instance, in grades one to 10, wants to do away with advanced math. Because yeah. they, oh, that's problematic, which let's, we can talk about. It's nuts. But even aside from not learning real content, these kids have their defenses against this bad stuff. It's much more fragile. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about California and Oregon, like bad state leadership. Who's getting this right? Who's at least seeming to try to uphold standards in the name of closing disparities or improving outcomes for all? I mean, it's, it's a great question. Partly, I mean, standards has become such a fraught, <laughs> such a fraught topic in the U.S. You had the big common core push starting you know, around the time of Race to the Top back in 2008, 2009. And, you know, what happened, it seems more innocent in retrospect, but it was still incredibly infuriating. The folks pushing the Common Core loaded it up with all kinds of assumptions about what kinds of texts kids should read. They should read less fiction, that they pushed this new conceptual math, which many parents, including me, have trouble making heads or tails out of. And so when we talk about being for standards, that's part of the trouble is the folks who you might expect to man the ramparts on behalf of high standards, a lot of those middle-class suburban parents just kind of tuned out. They said, man, I don't want to be for this stuff. And so one of the reasons I think schools are finding themselves with such weak defenses against some of what's getting pushed on them is a lot of those middle-class and suburban families have spent 10, 15 years or more learning that, you know what, none of this school reform stuff is about helping their kid. Nobody's actually talking to them. They're just going to tune out. And what's fascinating is only when some of the really crazy stuff is seeing the light of day, suddenly they're snapping back into action in this highly reactive mode. But it's all about pushing back against the craziness. None of it, to your point, Ian, is about saying, let's make sure that the kids are reading a terrific, rich, rigorous set of texts in grades 9 to 12. Yeah, that, that ship has already sailed. Now they're just sort of dealing with the the most radical ideas. I see that. There's been this sort of recent talk among some conservatives, but also just middle of the road politically parents about trying to run for school board more, getting more involved in the leadership of these districts. Do you see that as a strategy that's likely to win the day in these districts? Or this is this just kind of, they're just kind of nipping at the heels of this problem and it needs to be solved. I mean, if you have the governor sort of signing these kind of laws, how much power does the school district have to push back against that? A lot. I mean, I think, I think, you know, these school boards matter a lot. Even if you pass these laws, as like our colleague Robert Pondicio never fails to remind people, there's the paper curriculum and then there's the enacted curriculum. You know, we know, for instance, that 99% of teachers, give or take, report that they actually get their classroom materials off of Pinterest and Facebook, not out of the formal stuff. So it matters immensely kind of who's got an eye on schools. So I think this is actually really important. I think it could be really impactful. I'm not convinced that there's going to be a lot of staying power. During the Common Core fight, we saw starting with these Indiana Common Core moms, there was this huge brush fire of pushback that swept the nation. But once they had pushed back in the moment against Common Core, a lot of those folks went back to all of the other things that kind of occupy your lives as a busy parent. And I think if the fight is we sign laws in red and a couple of purple states, and these a lot of parents run for school boards, 
that will absolutely, at least in those communities, have a big impact on some of these problematic practices. The question is, frankly, what happens next? School, I think school districts will remain vulnerable to these hucksters who are pushing their thing so long as foundations are writing checks and so long as, as long as this is kind of the flavor of the month. But what happens in education is the wheel tends to turn every five or seven years. People will get bored with this, will decide it didn't work. Hopefully, they'll move on to something less damaging. But the question will be whether these parents running for office can outlast you know, these problematic practices or whether the immediate threat will simmer down. They will move on. You know, Conservative media will move on to some new object of concern. And a lot of this will just be done quietly you know, behind the curtain. Okay, well, I just ran for school board. I've got a three-year term, so I hope I can make it all the way through. Well, the problem is that, you know, the parents' kids graduate, and then, you know, who wants to go to another yet another school board meeting once your kids aren't even in the system anymore? One thing on the school board front that actually I think is an emerging idea, and Rick, I know you're working on this, the idea of transparency. The thing that seems, certainly in my own district here, the thing that seems to be freaking people out is not just these theories about critical race theory and anti-racism, or even outside of issues of race, gender. It's when they start to discover that their kids in first grade are being taught sexuality and all these (laughs) things that they just had no idea. And so it does seem that there is an emerging movement around this idea of parental transparency or curricular transparency that school boards do have the power to adopt within their localities. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they got power to adopt, you know, they also have the power to say to schools, hey, we don't believe you should be talking about these topics with children at grades three to K to three or K to five. Not that you can never talk about them, but that there are ages at which these are appropriate topics. And there's ways in which we believe schools ought to address them. You know, frankly, also part of this is a lot of this stuff gets dressed up in the guise of expertise. So the folks who are being brought in as consultants or the academic experts will say, well, this is, you know, we've seen this, for instance, with these affinity groups, when schools encourage kids to organize themselves based on race or ethnicity to talk about a a difficult question. And, you know, school districts will assert that this is an evidence-based practice. I actually, (laughs) I was curious. We just went and looked at the entire existent body of research on this report on Google Scholar, where to be clear, there are 140,000 listed studies on school transportation. There's tens of thousands of studies on school testing and school choice. And when those topics, nobody says school choice is evidence-based. They say, well, there's a lot of competing evidence. And when you look at it on racial affinity spaces in schools, instead of 140-some thousand studies on transportation, there's five studies. Not 5,000. There's five. Four of these studies are actually the professor either going to a school, and I think three of the four cases a private school, if I remember right, and watching a class where a teacher does an affinity group, and one of them, they interviewed 10 experts. None of the five studies have a lick of evidence that any normal person would recognize as showing whether these worked or didn't work. So part of the problem here, too, and again, where school boards and parental involvement can be so powerful, is just asking the emperor has clothes or no clothes question about, all right, you want to do these pretty dramatic things with our kids. What's the evidence that our kids are actually going to benefit from this? 
I think in many of these cases, what, what gets thrown out as evidence turns out to be laughable or non-existent and even a cursory look. And if you haven't managed to teach them how to read yet, why should we trust your ability to completely remake society? No, it's, it's, there's a legitimate question there. It's a great question. <laughs> Stay um, to your lane, man. Stay to your lane. lane. Oh, gosh. Well, we're depending on Ian to save us all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least I am. First one school board, <laughs> then the world. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. All right. All right. Oh, Rick, good stuff, man. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I think we didn't mention the title of your most recent article on this. It's called When Educational Equity Descends into Educational Nihilism. And I recommend it to everyone. Really gets to the heart of the problem. So with that, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get our podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. So I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks, Rick. Thanks so much. Good to be with you.